1: Everybody. Welcome to Howard David Live. We get it going on a Tuesday. Bring in um, NBA's own uh, Brian Geltziler from SiriusXM NBA Radio. Geltse- history tells us in the NBA that we're not shocked if superstars get traded. Go back in history. Will Chamberlain got traded. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got traded. I mean, the list goes as long as your arm. And now here we're talking about the possibility of Kevin Durant getting traded uh, after he asked for a trade, and most people felt he was going to stay in Brooklyn, but now Boston has reared its head, and they have not only shown interest, but the way I understand it, they've been in constant contact with Brooklyn, and Jalen Brown's been mentioned in a, you know as part of the trade deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, listen, the way I've seen that Durant. This whole Durant ordeal, and I'm not going to call it a sweepstakes. I wouldn't go as far at this stage to even call it a fiasco. It's an ordeal. Yep. The way I see this Durant ordeal is that there's realistically only two teams in the league that can make themselves better by bringing Durant in. And I mean that because what you're going to trade for Durant in most cases is going to keep you from being that much better to have him in. If you look at a team like Toronto, you give Siakam and Ananobi. You're not going to give Scotty Barnes. Well, where are you? It's Durant, Barnes, and Fred Van Bleet. You've anybody in the East in a playoff series? Any of the top four teams in the East to an F? Probably not. Um, look at even a team like the Pelicans. You're going to go give a Brandon Ingram package with Jackson Hayes and whoever else, or Valen and it's McCollum, Durant, and Zion. Is that going to be better than the top four teams in the Western Conference? Maybe, but I don't know that it's gonna. And if you're New Orleans, if he's not happy, you're just inheriting Brooklyn's problem at BS out after a year. Miami, if they were willing to put Jimmy Butler in a deal with some picks, maybe that would upgrade them a little bit, but not that much. Boston and Golden State, this comes down to it. because both of those teams have depth at the top of the roster and the bottom of the roster that they can enrich the Nets with the kind of deal the Nets are looking for. I will say this. Boston's got to be a little bit careful here how far they go with this and be prepared to do some damage control with Jalen Brown if they decide not to make a deal. And listen, from the reports we heard yesterday, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN and Sham Sharani of The Athletic is that two teams are pretty far apart. I mean, the Nets want Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, three firsts and three swaps. They would That's what they would require. Boston offered Jalen Brown, Derek White, and a first. That's not going to get it done. They're going to have to replenish some picks to do a deal like that, and they're going to want Brown and Smart, but where Boston's got to be careful is Jalen Brown, you know, he hasn't exactly gotten along with everybody all that well during his tenure there. He had some issues a couple years back when, you know, Brad Stevens made the decision to put Gordon Hayward in the starting lineup when Hayward came back off an injury and kept Tatum in the starting lineup and put Brown on the bench playing 20 minutes a game when Brown had felt as though, and he wasn't wrong, he had outplayed Tatum the prior year when they went to the conference finals. Um, Tatum, um, Brown's had some issues getting along with Marcus Smart. And finally, Tatum and Brown this year kind of came to the agreement who's 1A and who's 1B. And it was a comfortable hierarchy offensively for those two guys. And they busted their butts and they played well together. And now the one that's kind of being used as bait in Kevin Durant talks is once again Jalen Brown, who has shown them that when he feels disrespected, he doesn't respond great. So I think Boston's got to be careful here. I'm surprised at this late date that Boston decided to do this. I felt like if you were going to do it, try to get it on the front end, they're trying to see if they can swoop, swoop in and steal him. And here's one other factor with them looking at swooping in and stealing him. The clamor's becoming a little bit louder, Howard, that Durant is in the – I don't believe he's doing – threatening this directly to the Nets but through some intermediaries that there's a possibility that he could not come to training camp and decide to hold Now I think the Nets play chicken with that because I don't think Kevin Durant will ever do that. He's never given an indication in his career that basketball is not the priority. He's always put basketball first in this particular scenario. I think he understands it'll be easier to get dealt um, for the package and that's looking for if he's playing as opposed to not playing. Um, So I don't know that he necessarily does that but this could get a little ugly here, and I think we're in for an interesting rest of this off season. I don't think anything's going to happen soon. I think you know deadlines always spur action. Our deadline on all this is going to be right as we get up to training
1: camp in September. Cal, so you you go back. Uh, DeAndre Ayton's name was mentioned, and uh, the Phoenix Suns matched the offer. He stays in Phoenix. That you would think would kill a Durant deal, but I'm going to throw another team at you. Uh, only because of the people involved, in particular, uh, the top executive involved, and that's Miami. Pat Riley is not afraid to pull the trigger on a big deal. What would it cost him? Well, probably, uh, I, don't, I guess, out of bio. Uh, they're willing to do that. Uh, what else would it cost him? I'm not really sure. Tyler hero, probably. I, I don't know if that's enough to get a deal done, but I wouldn't turn my back on Pat Riley. He has demonstrated in his career that he can pull the trigger on a big deal. It's very complicated with Miami, Howard, in this respect. The Nets cannot take Bam Adebayo onto their team in a deal without sending Ben Simmons out. Hmm. Because of this designated player
0: extension rule, you cannot have two guys in the same team that were signed to five-year match extensions in their second contracts that you traded for. Hmm. They already have Ben Simmons they would have to send Ben Simmons out now listen there's some teams that there's. A, I saw a rumor today that the Raptors potentially had at one point some interest in Ben Simmons and could have some interest in him again so it's certainly not possible to involve a third team in those kinds of talks I do know that at one point there was a discussion regarding Bam Adebayo Tyler Hero package with Duncan Robinson going back to the Nets with Durant and Simmons going there together um, that was something that was, was bandied about. Ultimately, I will say this. I think, I don't know that any third team is going to cooperate to get Kevin Durant to Miami. Um, I do think if Pat Riley really decides he wants Durant, it's going to be Butler and a couple of first round picks. And because, you know, keep one thing in mind for Brooklyn they want to reload picks because they gave all those picks away in the Harden deal, they got two back. In the uh, in when they sent Harden to Philadelphia, but they're, this is Kevin Durant. They want to get an all-time historic level return for him, and I don't know that necessarily putting a third team in a Miami deal and getting all that done in that way is. I don't know if going to cooperate to want to get him there. I just think it's tough. The other thing is this: different teams, because of their history, because of their management, their picks are valued differently around the league. Miami's picks aren't all that well valued. Because Miami's generally really good each year. Right. So what do you get? You're getting picks in the 20s. Boston's picks aren't going to be that well valued. Even a set of Golden State picks won't be all that well valued. Golden State's another one that looms very larger. Kevin Durant wants to go there. And and you look at their situation. They have the same situation with Wiggins that Miami does without a buyout. Where Wiggins is then, kind of Wiggins is going into the last year of a deal, but he's still on one of those designated max extensions, so they can't bring Wiggins in. Now, would a team like Indiana potentially give up something for Wiggins to take the contract in? Yeah, but if I'm Golden State after the year Wiggins just had, I'm not giving him away. I mean, he's he was listen, Wiggins was enormous. No one could have guarded Jason Tatum better than he did those NBA finals. Exactly, like, terrific. Yep. So there's so many different moving parts. One other thing about Aiton and the match by Phoenix, which Phoenix really, if you look back, had no choice to do. The thing with the Aiton match is that if Durant ends up back in Brooklyn and it's not working out, whether it's trade deadline, whether it's next summer, Phoenix is back in that. Because come January 15th, they can trade DeAndre Aiton. Mm -hmm. And if I'm Phoenix and Durant's
2: back with Brooklyn, And I
0: believe that I have a chance to potentially get Durant, whether it's a deadline or next summer. I'm going to feature DeAndre Ayton a lot more on my offense than I have recently to try to build his trade value up. Because I I think that that's, you know, right now I don't know how keen Brooklyn is on that player, but I think DeAndre Ayton, from an offensive standpoint, is an underutilized resource for Phoenix. And if you're going to be looking to, to throw him out there as meaningful value in a potential Kevin
1: Durant deal, you're going to have to make him a more valuable player on the offensive end of the floor. Net leaves us to talk about Kyrie Irving. Irving says he, it looks like he's, he wants to be back in Brooklyn. Whether or not Kevin Durant comes back or not, I, I don't know. Look, I take what I hear from Kyrie Irving with a grain of salt. Based on his track record, can you really take what he says to the bank? I can't. Uh, but the Nets are in a difficult spot. Uh, he's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. He picked up the option on, what, $47 million, whatever the number was. Uh, and the rumors were that he was going to get traded to the Lakers for Westbrook and all of that. fact of the matter is, the Nets are not going to commit to this guy for a four-year deal, uh, now or ever. Uh, and and well, they shouldn't. But the fact of the matter is, he's a, a top-tier player in the league, and a lot of teams say, you know, we can fix it. Whether they can or not remains to be seen. But I expect to see Irving back in Brooklyn, don't you?
0: Oh, I think if Durant's back... You'll get Irving back. I think if Durant's not back, they're not going to put up with Kyrie Irving. Oh. Now, again, I will say this: what I've heard, Howard, is that one of the reasons Durant reasons Durant wants to leave Brooklyn is because of Kyrie. Irving. That he is he the belief that Kevin Durant has is that there's too much uncertainty when you play with Irving, and I don't have that many years left to be able to go get a title. So I, but the reason I think is because. There is a belief with the Nets that if we can run this thing back with the way we planned it initially, we have a chance to do something here with Irving and Simmons. So I don't think they're going to look to break up Durant and Irving if they get everybody back. Now, if they trade Durant, I think you could see Irving move. But I'll say this. About a month ago on my NBA, maybe three weeks ago, on my NBA radio show, I spoke to Nick Friedell of ESPN who made it clear, and he covered the Nets for them this year, he made it clear that according to what he's hearing, the Nets don't want Russell Westbrook, that if they trade for Russell Westbrook, they're going to buy him out with the thought of having some cap space for the following year. So I know that, listen, that all the rumors you hear about a Lakers deal regarding Kyrie Irving are coming from the Laker side because it's what LeBron wants. LeBron wants Kyrie back there. He wants Russell Westbrook done. I think you're right. Ultimately, I think the Nets are going to keep both players to come into this season. I think Mm -hmm. Durant ultimately comes to camp. And I think once he does, I think you'll see a better version of this Nets team. The problem with the Nets is that no one likes each other in that organization right Mm -hmm. now, and it's only gotten worse. You know, between... You know,
2: a lot of Irving's public comments have shaped the front office and the ownership
0: group the wrong way. Um, Durant and Josiah really butted heads here, just in in a passive aggressive way, but just in a respect that size kind of said, hey, listen, we did everything you wanted us to do. And now you're essentially blaming us for things going wrong. We hired you the coach you wanted. Our team president didn't want to trade for James Harden. You did and I overruled him because it's what you wanted. Harden used us to get to Philly and it didn't work out. And listen, as much as everybody wants to tell you that the reason Harden wanted to go to Philly had to do a Kyrie and the vaccine, Billy King, who's a former GM of the Philadelphia 76ers, and very well connected there, told me, okay, when that, right after Harden was traded... And Harden's entire goal in getting out of Houston was to find a way to Philly even if Brooklyn had to be the conduit to get there. So it's mm-hmm.
2: highly possible that if Harden wasn't traded, he was opting out this year and finding a way to get to
0: Philadelphia as a free agent. So it, it, Irving wasn't necessarily a smoking gun there, but again, Kevin Durant got played a little bit there. Joe Sy got played by Durant in turn, and now it's at a point where side as it feels like we don't have to listen to you anymore. But if Kevin Durant takes a step back and realizes what this team just did in the offseason, the two guys that they brought in in in, um, uh, Royce O'Neal and T.J. Warren, this is a better team. You're going to get Simmons back. You're going to get Harris back. I just will tell you this. Short of finding his way to Golden State or Boston, I don't know that Kevin Durant's going to land in a better situation with a better chance to win a championship. And he will whiff the Brooklyn Nets. And I think that's something for Durant, as annoyed as he is, as aggravated as he is, he has to look at that. And even the stuff with him and Nash, I don't know that him and Nash are in the best place at this stage anymore. You know, Nash got brought here and really got run through the ringer and run through the mill um, with everything that went on. Nash didn't ask for this kind of drama. And Steve Nash has done everything. And I'm not the biggest Steve Nash fan as a coach,
1: but he's done everything in his power to put a silk hat on a pig here. It has been very, very difficult circumstance. He's Brian Geltseiler, Sirius XM NBA Radio. Let's go across the river to the Knicks. Uh, they make a bit major signing with Jalen Brunson. Give him over $100 million, which at that number, usually reserved for superstar, all-star player, neither of which is Jalen Brunson to this point. However, the Knicks are desperate. They needed a point guard. They wanted a point guard. They paid whatever they felt they had to pay to get the, a point guard and a good one. I mean, Jalen Brunson's a good player. Make no mistake about it; he's better than what they've got. Now they re-sign Mitchell Robinson, they add uh, Isaiah Hartenstein to their roster, and they're going fishing for Donovan Mitchell. Now let's look at Donovan Mitchell and the the, the Utah Jazz. There's a franchise, as you well know, they're cleaning house. They're they're tanking. Uh, you know the Gobert trade. Obviously, Donovan Mitchell does Donovan Mitchell make the Knicks better? I would say he does. But would you put him in the superstar category?
0: I'm not a Don, huge Donovan Mitchell fan, Howard. I don't think I think Donovan Mitchell makes the Knicks better. I don't think he makes the Knicks better than good. They're not going to be very good, and they're not going to be great. A couple things we have to remember about Donovan Mitchell last year. Now, I'll start this little analysis I'm going to give you by saying he played on a team where the coach favored three-point shots and had no interest in the mid-range game. Um, which we can argue to the cows on on, on why that's a faulty set of logic. I know that the the math says three is greater than two. The math also says that two is greater than zero. And and I think a lot of times threes are taken at the expense of what were better, higher quality shots that are closer to the basket. And I know about expected value and all that. I get it. Okay. But I I do think sometimes we got to play the game on a court, not on a spreadsheet. So Mitchell, Took 20.6 shots a game last year. All right? 9.8 of them were threes. Almost half of his shots were threes. He shot 44% from the field. He shot 35% from three. He shot 53% from two and 85% from the free throw line. Explain to me why this guy's not taking more two-point shots guy can shoot 85 percent from the free throw why are we not getting to the basket and getting more free throws Mm -hmm. okay 53 percent from two why are we not using a 10 to 12 pull up jumper more instead of going in against all the trees and having it have to be either in the restricted area or behind the three-point line um the other thing with donovan mitchell two other things number one he doesn't defend and he doesn't guard and last year he kind of quit on that end of the floor, if we're being perfectly frank about it. He he really was more of a problem with the Jazz than a solution. The, the splits with him and Gobert on the floor are bad. He he kind of expected Gobert to make up for all of his defensive deficiencies. Didn't really try hard on that end of the floor. And oh, by the way, the guy's got a 5-3 to three assistant turnover ratio. Let's be careful about anointing Donovan Mitchell the next great thing to come to New York. And that's why this is such a delicate negotiation for the New York Knicks. Because yes, this is a this is a star level player that's available at the age of twenty five that has potential to get a whole lot better. He's got a local pedigree, it's a great story. And frankly, the position he plays he'll fit your team nicely. All those things exist. The problem is he's not the only missing piece. You have to be able to do other things. And if you're going to give Danny Ainge all of your picks and swap on the off years, and every good young player you have that's not named RJ Barrett, you're going to be left without enough to be able to go make the next kind of upgrade that you have to make to elevate yourself to potentially put yourself in a position where you can compete with teams like Milwaukee and Boston and Philly and Miami. Like, that's, you know, if you're the Knicks, you got to make a decision. Do we just want to be a team that hangs around in the playoffs for the next three or four years that's on the cusp of the plane that's a six seed a seven seed like that kind of team or do you want to be a team that's shooting for the moon and trying to be a legit championship contender donovan mitchell with this roster doesn't make you a legit championship contender you're still a move maybe two moves away from doing that Leon Rose got to be careful here and not bid against himself because when it comes to picks, Danny Ainge doesn't have a lot of other options that are going to be willing to pony up the volume of picks that the New York Knicks have because of what I thought was a brilliant draft night trade by Leon Rose. Keep one thing in mind, as much criticism as Leon Rose took for that draft night trade to trade out of 11 to let Detroit draft Jalen Durham. All of those picks that he got are what's putting the Knicks in pole position for Donovan Mitchell right now. And if they decide to pass on Mitchell, which I don't think they will, if they decide to pass on Mitchell, the next star player that comes down the pike, they'll be in pole position for him too.
1: That leaves Julius Randle. Is Julius Randle going to be a Knick? Uh, What could they get for him? And let's face it, he signs a four-year deal the year before last, uh, and everything went south last year for him uh, on the court. Uh, antagonizing fans. I mean, it didn't. He did not have an ideal year. Do they trade Julius Randle, and what could he bring?
0: Now, Mark Stein Substack had this report last week, where he talked about the fact that if the Knicks bring in Mitchell, they're going to look to move Randle. It makes sense to me. Yep. Um, I, I. I don't. Randall likes to dominate the ball. And although I think Jalen Brunson will play fine off of Randall, Jalen Brun- Brunson last year, whatever you want to say about him, Howard, he was the second-best player in a team that went to the conference finals. Mm-hmm. And he carried them in the first round. And Jalen Brunson, two guys in a league last year, All right, shot over 50% from the field. Over 37% from three and over 84% from the free throw line. Two guys in the NBA, Kevin Durant and Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson's a really good shooter. He's going to help them a lot. But the ball with Mitchell in hands, the ball in Randall's hands, it's going to be very tough to have all that together. So I I can see where they're going to look to trade Randall. The problem is with trading Randall is this now becomes a salary dump and not an asset trade. By the way, I'm okay with it. Listen, I, I look at what Dallas did and they, they did a Porzingis deal that was a salary dump and ended up making the team better. Like there is such thing as addition by subtraction in these situations. So when you look at a Randall deal, the places that you look, the three places that you look are the Lakers. And that would mean Russell Westbrook coming back. Now, there's a chance that the Knicks would use Russell Westbrook. There's also a chance that the Knicks would buy out Russell Westbrook and not necessarily want Westbrook on a team with Brunson and Mitchell. And for the Knicks, the Westbrook trade's not about Russell Westbrook. It's about the cap space that it generates next year. Mm -hmm. And hopefully they still have a couple of picks and can absorb someone in the cap space. Indiana is another place that you would look where Randall could potentially be a veteran anchor with a whole lot of young players. They have two expectations firing deals and Miles Turner and Buddy Healed that would be interesting to the Knicks on one, on a one-year basis. I know the Knicks have some depth and center just resigned Mitchell Robinson. Um But a year of Turner to see what he could do, not the worst thing in the world, and and have some competition. I know they have Hardenstein too, but again, not signed to enormous numbers. Buddy Heald's good three-point shooter You know, as a bent weapon would certainly be an interesting guy. So that's another deal. And then, of course, San Antonio has the cap space to be able to absorb Randall into it as well. Um, What would they get from San Antonio? Probably nothing appreciable and nothing of a lot of value here. The, The Randall deal would be just getting rid of Randall because he doesn't fit with Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And I do think the way Randall handled his business last year. Now, from what I hear, he's been much, much better here um, in the summertime, and taking a lot of interest in the Knicks' young players. And and him and Tom have cleared the air, and you know he's in great condition right now, Randall. So he's really trying to put his best foot forward to be a better leader for the Knicks next year. But I also didn't see the writing on the wall a little bit. You know, Kenny Payne was his very good friend. And Kenny Payne, and he went to take the Louisville job now, so he's not with the Knicks anymore. Part of what Randall's unhappiness was last year was the fact that they prioritized Alec Burks over Reggie Bullock. Richie Bullock was Randall's very good friend on that team, and Bullock, look what Bullock did for Dallas. Dude was phenomenal. Dallas paid him the same money that Knicks paid Alec Burks. Are you kidding me? So, so he had with Alec Burks, he didn't really want him there. He didn't think he belonged there, and he wasn't wrong. And now Alec Burks is gone, so he's not there anymore either. So, I think with Randall, they feel like they can go either way. But with the Mitchell deal ends up being imminent, I think it's a likely scenario that the Knicks find a taker for Julius Randle and maybe take on
1: a shorter but someone else's problematic contract back to them. Brian Gelsire with Sirius XM NBA Radio. You talked before about Boston and Durant. Boston picks up Malcolm Brogdon and Danilo Gallinari uh, on a team that got to the uh, NBA Finals, actually led two games to one, and then didn't win another game in the NBA Finals against Golden State. Uh, I I I think that uh, that the Brad Stevens what he's doing. I mean he's trying to make this team uh, better than they are and maybe contend to an, another level in a deep and tough Eastern Conference. Let's let, let I don't know how much. Uh, Atlanta's going to uh, get for, out of Murray, who they acquired, but he and Trey Young form a nice backcourt combination. You still have Milwaukee. You still have Miami. You still have Philadelphia. Uh, I don't know how much in your mind Atlanta improved themselves with Murray, but clearly Boston is not done yet.
0: No, listen, Boston's best team in the conference coming into this year. Yep, They really are. It's To me, it's Boston, it's Milwaukee, and it's everybody else. That's how I look at it. And, you know, and I will say this. I think it did kind of put an extra tier in after Philly-Miami. I think both of those teams are, are going to be very good again. And again, Brooklyn, if they keep Durant, and obviously everybody stays healthy and on the floor, I think Brooklyn could be as good as any of them. Um, but that's, you know, Boston is – Every the thing about this conference, and this is what's so good about this conference, everybody's improved in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Milwaukee's going to be improved because Chris Middleton's going to be back healthy. Right, Like, they, did, they may win that Boston series, Howard, if they have a healthy Chris Middleton. They took it that far. And not having Middleton in the end, they needed that mid-range shot creation um, guy be able to get his own shot late shot clocks that middleton's so good at they just didn't have a guy to do that so milwaukee's gonna be better boston you just said it they bring in brogdon as a bench weapon gallinari shooting it's gonna only help them and their younger guys the grant williams the robert williams even hopefully the peyton pritchards are gonna be a year better so they'll be a better team i love what philly did you know what? Getting Tucker in there. Yep. Getting DeAnthony Melton's an underrated player in this league. He's going to be a really good bench guy for them. And he's a little guy that he guards. guards aggressively, he guards well. I think Philly did a super job bringing in what they brought, and another team young guys, Therese Maxey, Paul Reed, young guys will be a year better, so I, I see some significant improvement there I think we're wrong to sleep on Miami although they haven't done a heck of a lot to improve that team, but I do think having Victor Oladipo for a full season will certainly help them, they'll miss Tucker but I don't think they'll have a hard time finding minutes and being able to fill in for Tucker because they do such a good job player development wise, so even if Miami's the same, they've made it to you know game seven in the conference finals last year they're still going to be really good brooklyn I, I addressed earlier with what they added and and if they have that and then listen you talk about atlanta murray's going to help them and make them better they are going to be a better team let's see if they can if nate mcmillan can get his message home about how well they have to guard and how well they have to defend because they uh They got a little fat and happy after a run to the conference finals two seasons ago. So I'm interested to see there, but I do think they will be better. The Knicks will obviously be better. The Cavs are going to be significantly better. Let's not sleep on the Cavs. The Cavs last year had a really good season, and they lost to Brooklyn in the play-in. They had a really good season, and they were without everybody at one point or another. Yep. Okay, Jerry Allen didn't play in a playing game, all right? They lost Colin and Colin Sexton will likely end up back there. They lost Sexton for the large majority of the season. Ricky Rubio was playing with like the 6 man of the year, they lost him for the rest of the season, okay? Mobley spent a bunch of time out. They were without Garland for a period of time. Um, keep this in mind about them. Rubio comes back. Sexton's likely to come back. And they went and traded for Karis LeVert last year at the deadline when they were short players. Now they're not going to be short players. Now they're going to actually have some depth and some size and some youth and some athleticism. Cleveland can be very, very dangerous. And then let's not forget about the Toronto Raptors who last year had a really good season. Barnes is going to be a year better. He may end up emerging as their best player. Gary Trent was terrific for them last year. And then, of course, Siakam, Mimbley, and Anobi. And, and, and they they brought that young back, and they brought on a Porter. So where they didn't have depth was their problem last year. They've addressed depth with the kind of guys that they like that fit what they do. The conference is going to be brutal, and I didn't even bring up the Bulls. Um, and the Bulls, listen, the Bulls are running back the same group with Andre Drummond, hoping that a healthy Patrick Williams, and and hopefully they get Alonzo Ball back healthy, will make them better. I think they're wrong. I think they made a horrific mistake not getting off Nikola Vucevic and finding a defensive-oriented five to bring in, even if it meant they couldn't trade for Gobert at those prices, even if it meant for some kind of sign-and-trade or an overpay to Mitchell Robinson. They needed a defensive oriented five they didn't do that they'll probably fall i think the bottom of that pile although i didn't think they were going to be real good last year and they ended up in a seed. so who the hell knows i mean it's my point is stacked.
1: that eastern conference no question no question before i let you go a couple of things about the celtics robert williams gets no publicity this guy is uh, he stays healthy and on the floor he's one of the more underrated players that i've seen number number two and the biggest thing When Udaka opens up training camp, he's going to have this blackboard in the middle of the floor, and there's going to be one word across the backboard. It's going to say turnovers, because that's what killed the Celtics last year in the finals against Golden State. Credit Golden State for forcing them, but the Celtics were careless with the basketball.
0: Brogdon is there to solve that problem. That is the single most important factor for them bringing in Malcolm Brogdon. Because... When they were in these big spots, Marcus Smart was the primary ball handler. And you can get through 82 games of a regular season and two, maybe even three rounds of the playoffs with Marcus Smart as your lead ball handler. But when you're going to go against the best defense the league has to offer, they're going to turn around and look to force your guys that are not the smoothest ball handlers and do handle the ball into making mistakes. And for the Celtics, it was smart tatum and brown especially brown but tatum too they need someone to stabilize that have the ball in their hands and get the ball to those guys in their spots instead of making them get to their own spots smart looks for his own a little too much to do that but i think the other offshoot of this that you have to realize with boston is in boston they increased their versatility in a big
1: way by bringing in Malcolm Brogdon because now they can play small when they need to Yep.
0: and it hurt them in the Miami series that they couldn't play small well enough uh, it's, you know, as well as Derek White played Derek White got exposed against Golden State I don't think Brogdon gets exposed in that same way Brogdon is an offensive upgrade over Derek White and he can guard the same way Derek. As Good as he played, he's become a disposable piece for them with them bringing in Brogdon. No doubt. But I think you're going to see Brogdon play more stretch run minutes. And ultimately, uh, you know, you having to make a choice between do I play Al Horford or do I play Robert Williams and go smaller up front, Tatum Brown smart with a Brogdon out there just to make sure that we have a stable ball handler that can get things under control. We're turning the ball over possession after possession after possession. And here's the other thing about Boston that is no one's talking. Than they were last year, and that is going to be scary, mm. scary, because they're going to be able to go to, a, to the bench with defenders all season, like Brown and White, who can guard the perimeter that much better, and to start taking pressure off Brown and Tatum, who emerged as an excellent defensive player in the playoffs, taking some pressure off those guys. They're going to be able to teams down without having to do a lot of double teaming they can switch everything those are switchable guys which if you're those kinds of switchable guys it's going to be really smooth boston may they can set records for how good they're going to be defensively in this regular season
1: appreciate your insight geltz as always you stay safe thanks
0: you too howard always my pleasure buddy take care
1: brian geltziler sirius xm nba radio knows his stuff no question about it that's why i have him on (laughs) i'm not stupid you get guys that really know the league inside and out, Gels does he knows the league, he knows what makes the league sing and dance and all the rest um, I think it's going to be very, very interesting how this Boston team I, I think they're going to be the best team in the East that's just my personal opinion Well, what do I know let's switch gears a little bit Mark, a zero. Hello, Mark. it's Howard David, how are you today? Howard, how you doing? So, did you play any golf over in Scotland?
2: I played seven times while I was over there, my friend.
1: <laughs> That's too bad.
2: <laughs> I, I did not want to... I, I didn't leave the bat on the shoulder, if you will.
1: <laughs> I have never seen so much discussion about an entity that hasn't done much. And I'm talking about the LIV tour. I mean, yeah. t- today in your paper, Charles Barkley gives the that gives the deadline to make him an offer. I'm, uh, wait a minute, Charles Barkley. You want to ask me about basketball? I'm gonna I'm gonna listen to Charles Barkley. You may not agree with him, but at least he offers an opinion based on his knowledge. Charles Barkley is one of the worst golfers I've ever seen. What what is it I guess he brings attention. But my bigger question mark is considering the PGA's role and partnership with CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, TNT, and whomever else, where does the LIV tour even have a place to air their product in the United States?
2: They really don't, Howard. And, uh, you know, the people I've talked to that have been, you know, involved kind of make it sound like it doesn't even matter to them. They're streaming it on YouTube and, I believe, Facebook. And, you know, for people of our age, that seems preposterous, like, you know, where are you going to go find that? But the reality is streaming is kind of where it's, where it's, you know, we're headed to, right? With, with our viewing, you know, it's, it's no longer, you know, plunk down on the couch and watch CBS and listen to Jim Nance wax poetic on Sundays, you know, or, you know, the final round, although as much as I do enjoy that, but, but the reality is, you know, a lot of the younger eyeballs, the, the younger generation, so to speak, which is, which is what Live is, is trying to attract it, you know it's they're streaming stuff that's how they watch a lot of stuff so i'm not really sure how important a tv contract is you know i'm not listen i might be wrong on that i'm not a business person but um but you're right i mean the other thing is that the tour you know PJ tour has monopolized everything and most notably every tv you know uh major tv network as you just mentioned i mean they're everywhere they, you know, they essentially have a tournament almost 52 weeks a year that's PGA Tour related, um, and every one of those is on television of some some form, whether it's ABC, NBC, CBS, you know, uh, ESPN, go down the line, uh, you know, Golf Channel, everything. So I don't really know where there is room for it um, on mainstream television, and uh, I'm not really sure whether Live cares about that or not.
1: All right, we know that Greg Norman uh, is running things there, and uh, the way I understand it, and correct me, uh, Jack Nicholas, I guess, was approached, probably Tiger Woods was approached, uh, and they got Greg Norman for, uh, for whatever the money is. And there's a lot of money involved. It's Saudi Arabian money, and everybody knows it. And then people object to the fact of the Saudis, and, you know, from a political standpoint, what they have done, uh, and everything connected with uh, 9-11. Uh Putting that aside, Greg Norman and you—if I say Greg Norman, the first thing that comes to my mind is he was an underachiever. Is that too harsh a criticism?
2: I don't know if it's too harsh. Um, you know, I think—I mean, I think Greg Norman's achieved a lot in his life and his career. Um, so, you know, he's—but he, I mean, listen, this is a guy that was held the number one ranking for longer than anybody in the history since the rankings were involved, uh, or, or, you know, were were, um, invented, so to speak, or uh, since Tiger, you know, Tiger Woods is the only person that's that's held the number one mantle longer than that. So, um, I I don't know. I mean, listen, you can certainly make the argument that he should have won more majors. I mean, the guy is literally, you know, he's been a bridesmaid at major championships more than, seemingly more than anybody in the history of the game, obviously, with with so many of his kind of, uh, whatever you want to call them, tragic finishes, you know, you the word tragic a little bit, but, uh, you know, 96 Masters, go on the line, having being, you know, having uh, hold out uh, Larry Mize, all all that kind of stuff. So, I don't. I'm not. I don't. I think overachiever might be a little bit too harsh, in my opinion, because I think he's. You know, he has achieved a lot, um, not not only on, on on the golf course, but certainly off of it, with his you know design program and his uh, business and his uh, his apparel and all that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, I mean, listen, Greg Norman is a polarizing figure, it always has been in the game, and that dates back to when he tried to take the PGA Tour, you know, on back. Uh, when he was trying to start his own world tour and, and it never got off the ground. And a lot of people looking at this situation with live and his involvement as, you know, the perfect storm for him. Cause he's got a, 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 a limitless budget and, uh, and a chance to, you know, to dig into the PGA tour and which is, which is what's happening right now. I mean, they've gained quite a bit of momentum before, you know, for being honest here. I mean, I don't think any of us really thought that the number of players, top players, that have jumped over there would have gone... I mean, I, I think... I mean, I'm, I know I'm a little bit surprised at the the level of player that has gone over there. Mm. You know, the Bryce and DeChambeau's and Kepka's and DJ's and... I mean, Phil was always... Phil Mickelson was kind of always made for this anyway because you know, he was in the latter part of his career and, you know, one of the most popular figures in the game, so why not? But, uh, yeah, I, I, I... I'm fascinated by the momentum that this thing's taken and, and I'm also... A bit surprised at how how much the PGA Tour um, did not take this seriously enough, and now you know now they're 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 fighting for their lives, so to speak.
1: Let me ask you this, Mark. Talking to Mark Canizero, the Post, who's been covering uh, golf for the newspaper for quite a long time. Um, I'm not. I, I don't. I don't know the PGA hierarchy well enough to say you know they're going to get vindictive here, and by that I mean. Is there a thought that the PGA would get to discuss with the Masters, the PGA Championship, uh, the the uh, the Open Championship in Europe, uh, and say, you know, we want, we we'd like you to bar the LIV players from playing in your events? Could is that even possible, or would they even consider doing that?
2: Well, listen, they all talk. Um they, you know, they all want the system to, to, remain the system that it's been, you know, they like the, 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 big buzzword is the ecosystem of golf. That's been the big, one of the big buzzwords has been tossed around by Jay Monaghan and, and Martin slumbers from the R&A most recently, you know, in Scotland when we had, a, you know, we'll sit down with him, you know, it's state of the state of the game with the R&A. They all want it to remain the same, but they're all realistic enough to know that, you know, first of all, there's a lot of legalities involved. Um, you know, here, Howard, and if you've noticed, uh, we haven't heard anything from Augusta and the Masters. Now, there's there's a couple reasons for that. First of all, they don't have to make any decisions or make any comments because their tournament isn't until April. Um, all three of these other majors, uh, you know, took place uh, since this live movement has started to gain traction. So, um, you know, the PGA of America... You know, let the players play, as did the U.S. Open and the British Open. You know, what's interesting here is if these guys all make 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 it an overt statements that they want to try to ban the players involved with Live and 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 kind of align themselves with the PGA Tour or the European Tour. That is that is blatant collusion, right? And so you know, now you're talking about a. I mean, you know, the Department of Justice is already investigating the PGA Tour for you know for its practices in terms of uh, you know non-compete and whether they're able to ban these players and whatnot. So, th- it's been a very, everything's very carefully worded all the time with these, with these organizations. The other thing is the U.S. Open and the British Open, let's not forget the, the second word in both of those, those titles. They're open championships. Mm-hmm. So how are you going to ban players if yep. you're an open championship? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, everybody should have the right to, to to, you know, to compete and to try to qualify. So the, the the thing that they're dangling right now, the PGA Tour and the world, you know, the, the, the European Tour and everybody, it's pretty clear to me that they're going to manipulate the world ranking system because at some point they're going to have to give the live golf world rankings. And world ranking points for our listeners are, you know, just in a, in a, in a brief synopsis, synopsis that's one of the primary ways in which players can qualify for the major championships is world ranking points. You have to be, you know, X number, you have to be top 50 in the world or whatever, whatever it may be for each championship. So right now live has no world ranking points and they're, they've applied for world ranking points, but here's the interesting dynamic. You know, everybody on the board for the world ranking point system, Augusta national, the PGA tour, the PGA of America, the RNA, the, uh, the USGA, all of the the organizations that, that that don't want live to be around in the first place. So that's going to be a fascinating <laughs> dynamic. It's, all of those people should really recuse themselves of, the, of making of any decision making because it's a conflict of interest. but essentially the entire board is, is is made up of all of those people. So there's just so many elements here, you know uh, in play. And there's no question in my mind that that Jay Monahan has had conversations with with, with Augusta and with the USGA. Mike Wan, who's very tight with with both uh, Jay Monahan and uh, uh, Seth Waugh, who runs the PGA of America. You know, so they're all want the same thing, but they have to be very careful here about you know any any you know appearance of collusion, even though everybody knows there's collusion going on. So. Yeah. Um, it's, it's a very, there are so many things yet to be played out here, Howard. Uh, it's really, this is the tip of the iceberg right now. And right now, I, I really believe that, that the Live Golf Tour has, I, I think, maybe even surprised itself at the kind of momentum it's generated, you know, in a short period of time.
1: Well, the amount of money that's being offered has a lot to do with it. It's gotten a lot of attention. There's no two sure, ways about no that. Let's. You know, get... but
2: here, here's the thing, Howard, and I just, I in fact, like, I just was out with a, with, with one of the caddies from, uh, on the Live Tour uh, last night, uh, and I met him for a beer on my way back from our jet function. And, you know, one thing I said to him is the Live Tour, in our certainly in years in my lifetimes and, and most of our lifetimes, is never going to be able to recreate the incredible drama and vibe that we saw at the British Open at the end, you know, when we, Cam, you know, Cam Smith running down Rory on Sunday, mm-hmm. or you know, the U.S. Open at Brookline with that drama, you know, obviously with Matthew Fitzpatrick and and uh, and Zala Torres and Scotty, you know, Scotty Scheffler, because it, those things matter so much. Those majors matter, right? Nothing, it, it doesn't. I'm about to go cover this live event this week. You know, up, you know, beginning tomorrow, I'll be up there, you know, at, at Trump Bedminster. And once the golf tournament begins on Friday, it's going to be a really weird vibe, because you know what? It doesn't matter who wins the thing. Who cares? All they're winning is a big purse, you know, which is okay, all well and good and interesting, but I mean, we're so, in every every sport now, we're numb to the numbers, aren't we? I mean, uh, you know, so what if Charles Schwartzel won four and a half million dollars? It's the largest purse ever won in a golf tournament. Do we really care? Uh, you know what I mean? No. Right, so. You just don't, you're never going to be able to recreate that intensity, you know, of, of, of a tournament that matters and where the result really matters. And I just wonder how long Liv will be able to sustain that um, and, or whether it matters to them. I don't even know, you know, if it matters to them. But as a golf fan, which I know you are, I'm sure you were riveted watching the, the, the final round of the British Open and the final round of the U.S. Open, right, on television. Yeah. I was riveted covering it <laughs> at both of them. I'm not going to be riveted on Sunday, wondering who's going to come down the stretch, you know, at eighteen at Trump Bedminster, and win. What Trump Bedminster, what what the live tour really does need right now, this week, and this week could be a good time for it. They need one of their big names that they've paid these millions and these hundreds of millions of dollars to to play well. Because right now, the first two winners have been ho hum. But no offense, but you know they're just you know they haven't been Brooks Koepka or Bryson DeChambeau or Phil or DJ. So I think, that, you know, Liv could certainly, I'm sure that they are, you know, the powers that be at Live, beginning with Norman, are, you know, they're praying for a big name to win this thing and, and really creates, generates some, you know, you know, just some action here, you know, because um, right now, you know, again, no offense to Charles, Charles Schwarzel or Brandon Grace or any of these other guys out there that have had success so far in the first couple of tournaments. But these guys are not needle movers, you know, and, and live is all about moving the needle.
1: I was fascinated over the weekend. First of all, I was I was happy for Tony Fino. Uh, I've been waiting for him to break through, and he finally did. Uh, and I think it's going to lead to some more victories as well. But let me go back to what you started to talk about, about the British Open, heretofore called the Open. I felt terrible for, uh, for Rory McElroy And I think that's one of those days that will sit with him for a while until he wins a major. Uh, look, let's give Cameron Smith credit. He took that tournament. It wasn't given to him. Everybody didn't fold. He went out and took it. And he deserves a ton of credit for that. But McElroy, my goodness, I can't think of anything that would be more difficult to swallow than when he got off the golf course when when that day was over on that Sunday a couple of weeks ago.
2: He was definitely gutted, Howard. Um, And you could see it. You know, he he spoke with you know his usual grace and uh, and and class afterward, but you know that he went and sat down, you know, with his wife for a room by himself later on, and I and it it's it's stung. You know, there's no question about it, and it's stung for a few reasons, in my opinion. At the end of the day, when you really look back at what Rory did that week at St Andrews, it was pretty remarkable. The guy hit every he hit all 18 greens in regulation on Sunday, right? for the the entirety of the week he hit into one bunker and hmm. i always felt in my and by the way he eagled out of that bunker he he held out right for eagle right uh, i always felt that one of the tiger's most remarkable accomplishments of, amongst his many were when he won it i believe it was 2000 when he won his first at st andrews when he didn't hit into a bunker all week there's a, there's 100 plus bunkers on that golf course i don't know what the number is 130 i don't know what the, it's a lot of bunkers and you really to navigate your way around that golf course and not be in those bunkers because they are in a lot of weird places. And uh, it's, it's remarkable. He was in one bunker all week. He he, he didn't he didn't miss at all on Sunday. He shot under par. But you know what, Rory, I think where he's going to kick himself a little bit. Is I I feel like he, I, I think that he and Victor Hovland, who had four stroke lead going, at, you know, together going into that final round. Mm-hmm. I really felt like they played, they were playing match play against each other. Um, You know, it was a little bit of a kind of a feeling out boxing match against each other on the front nine. Yeah. Didn't really generate much of anything, okay? And all of a sudden, here comes Cam Smith, you know, in a group ahead of them, starting to birdie holes like a banshee, you know, around the turn, you know, 10 through 14. Yeah. And I think, you know, Rory admitted afterwards, he said, when Cam you know, when Cam started making those birdies, I just didn't have an answer. And, and Rory had a chance to extend that lead, you know, early on, you know, nine is a very birdieable hole. You know, he did not make birdie on nine and 12, same 12 and 14, also birdie holes, you know, where he's almost driving the green. I mean, he put uh, a nine and 12. He was putting onto the green on his third shot. So that's how close he was. And to not birdie those holes was a killer for Rory. And, uh, you know, and Cam Smith got into one of those modes where he made everything he looked at, and then, you know, he's probably, not probably, you know, I, I think it's pretty clear that he is, when he gets hot, he's, he's probably the best putter on the planet, and, 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 as well as in the short game. So, you know, Rory really doesn't have anything to look back on. It's not like he threw the tournament away, but Rory did not seize the moments when he had them, when they were there to be seized. Uh, to whether, whether it would have been extending the lead or whatever, or keeping up or tying Cam once Cam overtook the lead. Rory just didn't have that extra gear, and, and I'm sure that's what really bothers him the most.
1: Mark Canizero of the New York Post. We cannot have a golf discussion without talking about Tiger Woods. Uh, watching him in the first two days, I said, how in the world? Look, everybody said, well, the, it's flat. Uh, you know, he won't put a lot of pressure on his legs and all of that. He was, He was really working hard just to walk. And that leads me to the, the obvious question, how long can this continue? Look, Tiger Woods is, for my money, the most important figure in, in golf in my lifetime. And I'm not disrespecting Jack Nicklaus or Arnold Palmer. I have a world of respect for both. But Tiger Woods made golf cool for kids. And everybody loves him and loved, and, and you know, he, he has changed his personality over the course of time. But can we ever expect, in reality, to get Tiger Woods back to being competitive in golf tournaments, let alone majors? Uh, I I have a hard time seeing him win again, uh, given what we've
2: seen here. I mean, he's a year and a half removed from that crash and all the surgeries, Uh, You know, listen, he's getting, you know, he's a workout fiend and he's getting stronger every day, but it's, I just, it's hard to imagine him. I mean, listen, he's never going to dominate anything again. I think that's, that's pretty clear as he once did. But, um, you know, right now, you know, we've got to the point where making the cuts in majors uh, after what he's gone through physically Mm -hmm. is a, is a, is is a major accomplishment. And uh, to think that he could compete, I, I, listen, I'm surprised he didn't make the cut. I'm a little taken aback he to make the cut of the British because the conditions were benign, um, and it was a much flatter walk. It was not, you know. I mean, listen, there's some undulations and things like that, and it's, you know, you're walking for, you know, well, he, he played 58 holes before the tournament began, which I thought was a bit aggressive. Um, so he played really three practice rounds, although the first one was really just chipping, chipping and putting, and uh, but he played two full practice rounds uh, beyond that. Um, and also played in a uh, you know that four hole exhibition on the on the Monday, but I just you know I thought Tiger had enough knowledge to get around you know get his way around that golf course for as well as he's done there. I was surprised uh, to see him shoot the numbers he shot. Uh, to be honest with you, mm. um, and not make the cut. Um, that was a little eye opening to me because I really felt with the conditions the way they were. You know, he would have enough to kind of get it around uh, and make at least make the cut. So he listen. He's going to have a lot of time off before he plays again. I mean, the next time we see him is is probably going to be his own tournament. You know, in December. Uh, you know, at the uh, uh, in, in the Bahamas right. and Hero event, and and that's very you know very low volumes, low low stress stuff, and. Uh, you know, maybe he played. Or maybe I think actually the father son thing is before his thing. So we'll probably see him at the father son thing. I think that's in November, if I'm not mistaken, down in Florida. But again, I mean, that's, that's hits and giggles stuff anyway. So, um, you know, the next time we see him in earnest, I don't really know. May, will it be Genesis? Will he do, you know, will he do Riviera, which is his tournament? You know, will we not see him again till the Masters in, in April? I don't know. I mean, I really, I, I'm not sure he knows. You know, the one thing he did target on his schedule when he when he first was eight realized he could play tournament golf was that British open right and everything everything to him led up to that British open and quite frankly for him to miss the cut I think it's got to be a little demoralizing for him because you know he had saved up his energy and got got his strength back for that week and uh, to miss the cut I'm sure was pretty disappointing to him
1: hey Mark you know him as well as anybody uh, if, when he says I'm done then it's done. Nobody's going to write an article. Nobody's going to talk about it on television saying, Tiger, you should give it up. It's not who he is. We know who he is. He is a, he's a battler. He's a, he's a grinder. He's a guy, for my money, he's the most, in, he, he improvised more shots than I've ever seen in my life. But And, and the day's going to come when he's going to say to himself, I can't do it anymore at the level that I want to play at. And I think that's the key at the level he wants to play at. He's not going to go out there just to say I competed. Uh, he wants to go out there with the idea that he can win. I'm just not sure that that day is coming. gone.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think, you know, the next phase is really the ceremonial phase, you know, which, you know, Tag Tiger's never been a ceremonial kind of guy, but nor was Jack Nicklaus. And, but yet we would see him come and play some British Opens into his 60s and, uh, uh, and certainly, you know, the, the, uh, the masters and whatnot. Um, so, you know, I think Tiger will at some point reach that phase. I mean, he's only 46 years old right now. He is still pretty young.
0: So yep.
2: the question is, will he dabble on the senior tour a little bit, you know, uh, and play with his buddies there, you know, cause he's got a lot of guys that are on that tour right now, you know, that are his contemporaries, so to speak. So, um, you know, that may be a little something he dabbles with. I, I, have a hard, I, don't, I don't know if he's going to play on it or not, you know, but um, it just depends on how much he loves golf and loves competing and whether he thinks he can compete. Um, I think a lot of some of these younger, quote-unquote younger guys that come on to the senior tour, like an Ernie Els who just comes on at 50, you know, they think they're going to go smoke smoke these guys. And ain't that easy over there, either. There's some pretty good guy players over there. So I mean, Phil obviously has you know, won three times pretty quickly out of the box dabbling uh but uh yeah it's you know we I don't think anybody knows and I think that includes Tiger really where this is going to go I think he's going to just keep trying to get stronger and uh and and ride it out and see see if he can you know get get the swing speed to to a a place where you know the swing speed the ball speed uh, speed to a place where he thinks he can compete um and uh but you know I, I listen I I don't think we're going to... I don't think we're any. We're not fast approaching a point where we're never going to see him out on the golf course again. Let's put it that way. He's only 46 years old. But, you know, getting back to the original question, can he ever compete to win again? Uh, I don't think we've seen any signs of that so far in the tournaments that he's played since he's come back from the the car crash
1: injuries. Completely agree. You mentioned Ernie Els. That put a memory. I was working uh, uh, for uh, the PGA... Radio network. I worked a, a tour, a, a stop up in uh, uh, West Palm Beach. Uh, I want to say PGA National, maybe. And I'm standing behind the green. I think it was number ten, and it was very deep rough. Ernie Els hit his ball like ten feet from where I'm standing. He comes over, looks at the shot, takes a club out of his bag, and I didn't know which iron it was. I assumed it was some kind of a wedge, and he hits it, and he had a lot of green to work with. He hits it to within a foot of the cup for for his par. So as he's walking back up, uh, I stopped him for a second. I said, what did you hit out of, out of that that lie? He goes, a nine iron. I said, a nine iron? Really? He goes, why? What would you have hit? I said, ah, probably some kind of a sand wedge or a wedge. He goes, well, that's why you're not on the tour. I said, Ernie, do you think that's the only reason why I'm not on the tour?
2: Yeah, there's a lot more reasons than that. Absolutely, yeah. But,
1: I mean... I've uh, always I, been
2: a big fan of Ernie's. I love Ernie.
1: Yeah, considering the, how deep the ball was in the rough, I said a nine-arm just didn't make a lot of sense to me. But, heck, he stuck it to within the foot of the cup. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, before I let you go, I asked you at the very beginning about playing golf in Scotland. Uh, I was working for a PGA Tour Radio, uh, and they did a number of British Opens, including one uh, at St. Andrews. And we got a chance to play golf the day before the tournament. I don't know if you remember Mitch Voges, who won the U.S. Amateur one year. Yeah, I know the name. Sure. Yeah, and he he was my broadcast partner, uh, and he arranged for a game with two English pros, he and I, to go out and play. That was my first exposure to playing a course in Scotland and dealing with those bunkers. Mm-hmm. My God, if you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to look like an idiot. Well, I hit one in the bunker, and the guy said, one of the pros said to me, "Here's what you do: open your face." on the wedge and just don't worry about it. Just swing through it. I got out of the bunker and I went, thank you very much. I'm never hitting that again.
2: <laughs> That's yeah, rough. Yeah, yeah. Most, of the, you know, most of those bunkers, I'm bunkers. say most of them, a lot of them, you just, you know, you have to take, they're really over there much more than they are over here in our golf courses here in the States. They really are hazards. You have to come out sideways. You kind of have to take your medicine right. because some of the faces of those bunkers are so so steep yep. that if you try to advance the ball and that's the that's where I, I, kind of the beauty of it to me you know it, it really is the risk reward do you want to take the chance and try to advance the ball out or do you just take your medicine and come out laterally and sideways so it's almost like hitting it into the water you know that's the way it is over there
1: well I always appreciate talking to you my man so what do you got now about a 5 handicap
2: no no I'm, <laughs> I'm still hovering around a 9 right now that's alright i just, uh, I've played a lot, but I haven't played that well. Let's put it that way.
1: Don't worry about it. it's not about it's not about how you play. it's how much did you win
2: yeah no it's i I've, <laughs> I've enjoyed it. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I got my money's I worked, burned the candle at both ends over in Scotland and uh uh and did get you know while I worked a very very much a lot and produced a lot of stories. I did get seven rounds of golfing over there, so that's been that was a cool experience and saw some new places I hadn't seen and um so that was really that was real cool.
1: Did you go into a Scottish pub?
2: Uh, many of them, yeah. In fact,
1: yes. huh? how, how great is that?
2: <laughs> oh, they're great. That's so it's, it's such a great vibe over there. Plus, especially St. Andrews. St. Andrews is just the best of all of them.
1: Well, I went into a pub. My wife and I went into this pub, and I looked around and I was saying, "Mike, it's like watching a movie." And then I saw what I had to see. There was a dartboard on the wall. I said, That's it. That's it. That's all I needed to see.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's it's just cool over there. You know, it's a it's it's. Uh, there's so many things about that area. They, they, you know, those little towns, they, they really they revolve around their golf courses in town, which St. Andrews is very much that way. And, and uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I could live in St. Andrews. It's just it's such a beautiful place. It's yeah. really cool.
1: No doubt about it. Mark, always great talking to you. You stay safe. Keep hitting them straight. All right, Howard, thanks. Talk to you soon. This is Mark Canizero of the New York Post. That was fun. It really was. I, I mean, when I when you look on television at St Andrews, as historic as it is, or any of the other great courses in uh, in England or Scotland, uh, it just looks like it looks like a, a, a field out in the out in the, a farm somewhere, and it doesn't look like what we're used to with manicured greens and manicured fairways and all of that. We're so spoiled because the golf courses are immaculate. You go to Europe, you go to Scotland in particular, and see those golf courses, man, they will test your game. Thank you for being a part of Howard David Live, and you stay safe.